Welcome to Cabbages and Kings. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse, and I want to start by apologizing for the delay in getting this out. March got a little bit crazy, and I realized it was going to be a while until I got the new episode out, and also I wanted to reimagine the show a little bit. So, thanks for your patience. I'm rethinking the show a little bit. You are probably, at the beginning of most episodes, going to hear me rambling. Right now, it's about the show. In the future, it'll be about what I'm reading. I am also going to have some more guest spots that I'm hoping to integrate. In this episode, we've got Charles Pesour back with some short story recommendations for us. I will probably, as part of this, not be holding quite so strictly to the 30-minute limit between me, other guests, and the main interview. I would expect the show will often be pushing about 40 minutes, but hopefully as I get better at editing and finding key moments in an interview, that'll move its way back down. We are certainly, I'm certainly not giving myself permission to go ramble forever. This episode is the first of two parts interviewing Justina Ireland. My guest this episode is Justina Ireland, a young adult author and purveyor of awesomeness. Among many other things, Justina often tweets and tumbles about the representation of historically marginalized identities, and I wanted to bring her on to talk about this representation, specifically what it's like to read an identity presented well on the page and what exactly presented well even means, and also ways that readers can see negative presentations deconstructed on the page and the ways authors can do that and present problematic material. I usually start by asking guests about their path into the science fiction fantasy genre. Can you tell us a little bit about your reading history and what brought you into the genres that you read? Sure. I do read pretty broadly. I mean, I read a lot of SFF. That's kind of where my my heart has always been. The first, I think, real... I mean, most people usually point to something like A Wrinkle in Time as the first book where they fell in love with science fiction or fantasy. And for me, it was actually Anne McCaffrey's Pern books. Yes. I actually read the print books out of order because, you know, when you're a poor kid and you go to the library, you just take whatever's on the shelf. Mm -hmm. So I ended up reading, the first book I ended up reading was Dragon's Dawn, which is this weird mix of sci-fi and fantasy. And so I spent a lot of time reading that kind of stuff and kind of escaping just because like, um, like a lot of kids, I had like a terrible childhood. And so one of the reasons I like science fiction fantasy is it gives you kind of like this outlet to explore like heavy subjects without really exploring those really heavy subjects. So, you know, when you talk about race relations or race issues, there's automatically this instinct to kind of like hunch your shoulders and take the defensive posture. But when you're talking about the interplay between cat people and mice people, then it's, it's just a different kind of interplay. So I've always liked that ability to look at social aspects or aspects of social justice within fantasy and science fiction without really looking at those aspects. So like I, even even within young adult, when I read young adult books or I read middle grade, or, you know, whatever I read, there's always that aspect of, of science fiction and fantasy. Young adult is a little bit more willing to embrace the idea of representation and this, you know, this diversity soapbox, whereas... There's a lot of pushback in the SFF world. Yeah. Yeah. A very kind of like unexpected kind of pushback. Wow, I didn't really think anybody would could actually think that way. I was just going to note, since I often run these well after the interview, that this is the weekend after the World Fantasy Award announced that Lovecraft will no longer be the bust of the World Fantasy Award. So some of that pushback and people owning their bigotry is happening online right now. Right. And I'm just kind of surprised by it because, I mean, it's Lovecraft, but... Like, no one on houses for Poe. No one is out there picketing the streets because, you know, someone talked bad about Bram Stoker. It's less about Lovecraft and more about the idea of having to give anything, like, give any kind of ground. You know, if we let Lovecraft be removed from the World Fantasy Wars, then, like, the terrorists win. Do you remember either an early time or a recent time that you found yourself 
feeling represented in what you were reading? I'm assuming it did not happen with Dragonstone. <laughs> no. So the strangest thing is it's a different Anne McCafferty book, and I'm going to mess it up. I think it was Elvenborn, which is it's just this really kind of terrible book, Humans and Elves. And it's, it's an Anne McCaffrey, I think Andre Norton There's, is the, uh, the two writers. They co-wrote it. And it okay. came out in the 90s. I think Lackey was the co-author. So Andre yeah, Norton yeah, and Mercedes Lackey. There you go. Yeah, Andre Norton and Mercedes. Thank you. The whole premise of the book is it's like an alternate planet fantasy kind of realm where like the royalty they're basically like white plantation owners and humans are enslaved but humans have magic but they're all collared so i think andre norton died before the series is finished because there was one there was a couple more books that were supposed to happen but anyway so there's this this character who is half human and half elf and so she has magic and she finds a way to like lead this rebellion which you know yada 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 but she was the first character I had ever read that was kind of existed between two worlds. So I'm actually biracial. My mom is white. My, my father is black. And that was kind of like a constant theme when I was growing up is that kind of that existence between two worlds um, and that kind of fitting in really in neither world. Mm-hmm. So when I read this book, for me, it was kind of like, oh, wow, this is really awesome. You can do this. But at the same time, I kind of was irritated that you had taken something like the idea of being enslaved and like shadow slavery and then just put white people in there, (laughs) which is kind of like a terrible thing where you're like, let's talk about slavery without actually talking about slavery. Mm -hmm. The flip side of fantasy and science fiction being able to tackle social issues without really tackling social issues. Right, right. So it's kind of like, I mean, it's very much a double-edged sword to use a cliched term. But like at the same time, it was like, it was nice to see, you know, a couple of authors taking on this idea. And there was a whole bunch of ideas um, about feminism and like, you know, equality in there as well. But mostly it was just nice to see someone take on this idea of, Obviously, slavery is inherently bad, but how do you reconcile that with, you know, because there's, you know, by the time you get to the third book, you get like the elves point of view and you realize, you know, they're thinking, feeling people too. They're not all, you know, just evil, terrible, you know, plantation owners. So how do you like reconcile, you know, being a good person with participating in this kind of system that is, is terrible? Mm hmm. So I kind of like, I really enjoyed that. But at the same time, I was kind of like, you know, you took black people out of slavery and like, you know, you just completely erased them from the landscape. We always talk about reading white and like that when you read the default is white unless someone tells you otherwise. And it was very much, this was very much the case, you know, like the humans had tan skin and the elves had really, really pale skin. And that was really the only variation in in skin tone you got in so just more recently, I read Kate Elliott's Court of Fives, and she does a similar thing. Her main character is biracial as well. But mm-hmm. Kate does a really great job of actually saying this person is half black. And like she talks about how the mother has this very coily hair, you know, how she's very tall, and like how the main killer is, and she's very strong, and looks at her and calls her a mule because she looks. And she does a great job of doing the same thing that Lackey and Norton had done, but without the erasure of people of color. And I think it's so, so important to be able to take the tackle these very deep ideas of colonialism and identity and actually put them into constructs that don't erase people of color. Um, because when you don't, what you're kind of saying is it's a problem, but it's not really a problem for those people who are impacted. So it's, it's kind of like you're giving the, the real meat of the subject short shrift. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I'm just, I'm just really in love with what Kate's done in the book. Like, I'm a sucker for a romance. Forbidden romance has kind of always been my, well, my, my deal. You mm-hmm. know, I think we can all blame Romeo and Juliet for that. But <laughs> 
like I think she does such a great job of acknowledging those cultural differences and the fact that she can do it as a woman who does have you know a lot of privilege so she's taken like herself out of her current construct and, and managed to come across with that we always talk about the empathy you know like always trying to find for that empathy and like I won't lie I've read a lot of books where I'm just like I think it's going to go well and then there's something like in the middle of the story I'm just like oh my god it just went off the rails where'd the empathy go <laughs> mm-hmm. and I didn't have that moment with Kate's book and I, I think that's just it's just really nice to be able to, to lose yourself in a story and not get to a point halfway through where you're like well here's the part where now I'm upset um, right. and just to get, be able to enjoy the story going back for a second to sort of noticing noticing representation and noticing seeing yourself on the page do you remember kind of the flip side of that and when you realize there was either an author or a commenter or reviewer or something who was not writing with that empathy and and, and sort of imagining a world that didn't include an identity and, and thinking to yourself this is this is a world that doesn't include me or that I don't fit into I think that's part of the the nature of marginalization after a while you don't expect to see yourself anymore which is probably kind of the saddest thing of all so what happens is when you do see yourself it becomes this huge treat mm-hmm like I've had this conversation. My husband's my husband is a, is a is a white dude, so you know he has all the privilege. And like we've had this conversation a lot, and he's he, he's like, I don't, I can't imagine picking up a, a book and not being able to see myself in the pages at some point. And I'm like, you know, it's kind of funny. I'm, I'm the opposite. If I pick up a book and I can see myself in the pages, that's pretty exciting. You know, the majority of the Western canon revolves around heterosexual, able-bodied white men. Yeah. So, you know, you would spend your entire childhood reading books that are not about you, you know, as a black female. Everything you read is not about you except for like a couple books about suffering, like Sounder and Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. So like, you know, they're like, oh, look, here's, you know, here's a, th- and I think even Sounder is a, that's a children's book, but it's, I think it's a male lead. So you like, you go through like your entire life being kind of told the world is not for you, that at best you can be like a secondary character. It's difficult to say, like, when did you recognize the world was not for you? I think the bigger question is, when did you recognize the world didn't have to be that way? Um, and for me, as a reader, it was, I mean, honestly, it was probably five years ago. Where I was like, wait a minute, why am I not a main character in a book? And not, you know, not just like, you know, The Bluest Eye, which is a book about suffering. Like, you know, like something like, mm-hmm. I can have a happily ever after. You see the same thing in romance, like where you have all these couples and, you know, you have maybe a hundred redheads on the page, but God help you if you find a woman of color. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I think that's a profound it's a profound thing to see is to think, hey, wait a minute, I could like I could be a main character. Why am I not a main character? I'm like even thinking like to movies. It's very rare that you even see a woman of color leading in movies. Like now, television's gotten a little better. The, the percentages are still awful. It's yeah. just that we're so used to seeing white dudes that like even just a couple of women were like, oh my god, women are taking over. But yeah, I think it's I think it's more of a fact that I should be able to see myself, but. I don't expect to. And I think that's what makes me sad. It's like even like, you know, I'm I'm pretty plugged into this stuff. I talk about diversity a lot. I talk about it with my friends a lot. I talk about it with my husband a lot. I talk about it at work a lot. But even me being somebody who, you know, we always say someone who's woke, I still don't expect it. For example, you know, back to TV when I watched Empire and I saw that, you know, Cookie wasn't just a, the main character on the, on the show who, you know, she served 17 years in jail as, as Cookie, but she's not a stereotype. Like she's got depth to her. And like when I watched that, I was like, holy crap, you know, there's a woman who has depth, who has like something going on. Because even movies where you have 
a woman of color starring and she has like this role and then people are like, oh, such a moving role and it's so awesome. It's still reduced to a stereotype. Like if you look at the movie, the movie Precious, like, right, that's a terrible movie. <laughs> it is like the most depressing movie story of the inner city. There is no light in that movie. There is no hope in that movie. It doesn't mean it's not, you know, realistic or authentic, but that's the story that usually gets told. You know, I always joke, I'm like, if you're a woman of color on TV, you're probably the maid or a slave or marching in the civil rights civil rights movement right the roles that in the in the positions that you see women of color in both in television and movies and on the pages of books tend to be very reductive but then like you look now and you're like wow we have you know how to get away with murder and you have empire and you have all these like really great roles for women especially women of color but then you have like sleepy hollow where you have a great role for women of color and then you know halfway through the second season she's reduced to some sort of like character again so it makes me mad because I, it makes me mad at myself because I don't expect to see myself anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And it makes me mad that why have I given in to that idea so easily when I should demand more representation instead of just saying, wow, I'm excited when I have some representation. And as far as bad representation, that's, <laughs> that's, that's more often than not to the point where the more the reviews talk about how great and moving a book is, the more I know that it's going to be a terrible, terrible book. I always call it the help syndrome. The more like the mainstream white America likes a book, the more I know it's probably a terrible depiction of people of color. I think it's a Chris Rock joke who says, you know, he's like, the movie that's great about slavery is the one black people want to see, not the ones white people want to see because, you know, Nazis aren't lining up to see movies about the Holocaust, right? right. Like, so like, if it's an authentic betrayal and movie betrayal of slavery for people of color, it's probably not going to be something white people want to see. And that, that tends to be, you know, that's, that's more that conversation of who are you writing for? Who is your lens? Because what you see a lot of times is even when authors of color write books, they're still thinking of a white, middle class, heterosexual audience. And that tends to skew the story that's told. I read Sorcerer of the Wildies recently, which was one of Tor.com's novellas by Kaya Shante Wilson. I haven't had a chance to read, but I've seen the cover, and the cover's amazing. The cover's amazing. It is spectacular. It's it's very secondary world. It's they're off on an adventure, going traveling through a jungle. But it's a group of caravan guards, so it's a group of men being men together, and two of them are in love with each other, and many of them are speaking African American vernacular English, and some of them are speaking French, and there are different varieties of black men together and they have different attitudes towards gay people and different attitudes towards women when they stop off at the caravan stop and there are the brothels down the street. And it was interesting for me reading it partly because there would be scenes where there'd be dialogue between five or six people and I'd kind of pick up on what a couple of them were talking about in ways that a couple of those conversations related to conversations that I've you know, heard people talking about on Twitter and talked about with African-American friends. But like, there was stuff there that I wasn't getting. And it was clear to me that there there was some level of discussion of masculinity and black masculinity that just I was not aware of. And I don't have the context for and that was that was there in the book and thinking about who is the author writing for it's one of the very few times that I've read a book and felt I don't understand this. This isn't being written for me. I don't have the context to know what's going on there. But I really enjoyed that one. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I don't think the book all the time has to be for us. I think you can still get, I think you get something different from a story when you're, when you're not necessarily the intended audience. The problem it becomes when you're always not the intended audience. Mm -hmm. So, like, this is one of the things I talk about a lot with Hamilton, um, because, you know, like, everything in my brain right now is Hamilton, so. It's so good. 
It's so good. It really is. Um, but one of the things I, I love about Hamilton is there's these the subtext that you don't get if you aren't necessarily, you know, there's subtext if you're an immigrant in there. There's subtext about respectability that, like, you know, like I would talk about, you know, Hamilton with some people and they're like, oh, I didn't get that they were doing that. I'm like, yeah, like the fact that Burr doesn't rap, right? That Burr is all about the being the respectable I black had man. used to that. Yep. Right. So like when you're listening to it, like you get different things from it. I had a coworker who said, oh, I tried listening to it. I didn't like it because it was just, it was just too much. And I'm like, well, I understand. I get that. But for me, it's very much like the rap music I used to listen to in my childhood. It's like, you know, old Run DMC and Beastie Boys and, and that kind of stuff. And then it kind of, as you move through the story, the styles change and like, you know, to have this conversation, like, like I said, my husband and like his, his rap touch points tend to be different than mine because different upbringings. And so like, it's kind of funny, like the things he picks up on it are not the things I pick up on it. And then we have these conversations and he's like, oh, I see what you're talking about. I totally missed that. I'm like, right. You know, and plus, you know, in addition, like my, my bachelor's degree is in history. There's also this historical subtext. And I mm-hmm. think good stories have those subtexts. Yeah. And I think not everybody needs to pick up on every subtext to enjoy the story. But I think it's super, super important to, to include those groups that don't ever get any kind of subtext, to give them a subtext. There was a young adult book, not specfic, but a, a contemporary young adult book called um, Gabby, A Girl in Pieces. And huge portions of the story were in Spanish. The author did that on purpose. Um, she wanted to kind of communicate this experience of being in America and then also, you know, being part of this other culture. And you know, people were really, really upset because they're like, well, I don't read Spanish. Why is so much of this book in Spanish? But I'm like, but if you are a Spanish speaker, there's a different story you take away from that. Like, mm-hmm. You can still get a great story without re- being able to read the Spanish. Being able to read the Spanish helps. You know, I don't think it was, a, you know, especially difficult Spanish. There was enough that you could like, you know, you could Google it. You know, Google mm-hmm. Translate is a thing. Yeah. Um, but people were really, people were really angry that they felt like they were left out of this story because they didn't speak Spanish. And I'm like, imagine feeling like that all the time that's... Like imagine that's the thing like imagine like you pick up a story and you know like only like a, a half of the story is going to be for you like i don't think people understand that's what it feels like to never see yourself reflected in media is that you know going in you know you know going in there's going to be something that's going to make you feel like oh well this sucks that's what happens when you never see yourself reflected or you still see yourself reflected poorly consistently. Yeah. Like, oh, look, here comes the magical Negro character. Obviously, you know, they're going to help out and then die in some self-sacrificing, you know, heroic act where they don't make it to act through act two. It's like, so like, I think that's, that's really important to keep that in mind that, you know, not every story has to be for every person, but if you never have any stories for you, that's a huge tragedy. Mm-hmm. Okay, on that note, we are going to take a break to get some short fiction recommendations. Then Justina will be back to talk about ancillary justice and share a memory of a significant book. Dear listeners, it looks like you're trying to recommend short fiction. Do you need assistance? Hello, and if that clever intro did not clue you in, I'm going to be recommending some stories today that take the form of letters. And part of why I'm doing this is I want to show just how versatile the form of the letter is in fiction. It's very prevalent, it's used all the time, and yet it's done so for a very good reason. And most of the stories that I'll be recommending today are from 2016, one of them is from 2015, um, but very still worth checking out. Without further ado, I'm just going to get straight into it. There are five in total. The first two came out in February, 
important, I guess, or appropriate because February is both the month that uh, includes Valentine's Day, which these are both romantic stories, or kind of romantic stories, and secondly, that February is letter mode, so letter writing even more appropriate. The first appeared at Flash Fiction Online in February, and it is Love Letters on the Nightmare Sea by Rachel K. Jones, and it's just this very romantically dark story. So you get that, that juxtaposition right in the title, Love Letters, Nightmare Sea, and it's about two people who had a a long-distance, or in a long-distance relationship that is finally coming together and the power of words to overcome barriers and to pierce a distance and to get over anxieties and worries. And it's this very romantic story that is told as a letter to someone who's present but mentally not there. That, that sort of feeling of distance between the characters is palpable. And there's also, like, Nightmare Jellyfish, which is creepy, and it's just all very well done. Um, the second story is very different, but still very romantic. It appeared in Uncanny's February content, and it is The Desert Glassmaker and The Jeweler of Barriar by Rose Lemberg. And in this one, this features letters two-sided. Most of the, the letters in the previous story were pretty much one-sided, but here you get both sides of the exchange, and people m meeting for the first time in letters, and establishing a relationship in letters, and uh, talking about art and about distance again, and that sense that letters are something that that overcomes distance, that here are two people who are separated not just by miles, but by cultures, by climates, by all these things, that they are just from two incredibly different worlds, linked by the art, linked by the magic that they share, and they have this sort of connection that goes deeply and allows them to sort of bridge the gap between them and take chances that they wouldn't and just it's a very lifting romantic story so the first two are like the romantic stories and the theme sort of continues and gets a little darker as we progress the next story could be almost considered romantic but it is more on the erotic side of things it appeared in the flesh made word an anthology of speculative erotica from circlet press in later 2015 and it is rival pens by benji bright and that story, it's in a collection of erotica for a reason, but uh, it's not exactly what one would call romantic. It's sensually rich, the tone of it, the voice is charming, and is about two playwrights who are kind of frenemies, I guess, or the current term would be frenemies, who are exchanging letters back and forth, and the letters sort of both inspire and destroy each other's muses. It's like they're sharing a muse. It's like they have the opportunity to do something constructive, and instead they decide to be destructive. And the outcome of that is that they're both, like, completely... Well, I will not spoil too much but it's a very evocative and strong piece that uses the form of the letter to these letters back and forth between them to show just how kind of nasty they can be, just how biting, but also captures this this eroticism in the the piece that's just very good and worth checking out. Along a similar vein but darker still, we move to 
a piece that appeared in the first issue of Orthogonal Science Fiction, which was out, I believe, in late January of 2016, called The First Wife by Sarah L. Johnson. And this piece is very short, like the first one that I did, but it is very dark. And it's nicely done. It's, like, brilliantly done because it's a little bit of a mystery, and it has this great twist later on, like you're getting the sense of what's going on. It's taking a very classic kind of letter, one that is normally reserved to some something that's much more innocent, and it's making it something that is definitely not. It's another one that has a great sense of eroticism to it, a dark eroticism, definitely, but a sensualness and a language that is just sharp and cutting and hits, and very much worth checking out. And then we get to the last piece, which sort of goes full circle. Now we're into, like, full horror. So we've transitioned from more romantic sides of things into the more... Strictly horror side of things, and this one appeared in Nightmare Magazine's March issue, and it's the Modern Ladies Letter Writer by Sandra MacDonald, and this story, again, is taking the form of the letter and does something very different than all of the other ones. The other ones, in some ways, were about bridging distances or creating distances. This one is about how letters and language can be used as tools of oppression, and just the different ways that letters are used throughout these stories is very interesting. This one is letters being written to a woman to try and get her to do a, a specific thing, to get her to fit into a specific role. It's part letter, part etiquette manual, but it's very well done. It captures a feeling of a time, and it works itself in to a different kind of story. It's a Cthulhu Mythos story, which is very well and subtly done here. It's, it's not a monster story. It is definitely one that is exploring the idea of letters and the idea of voice and the idea of things reaching out in these ways that are unexpected. And all of the stories really do an excellent job of showing why the form of fiction as letter has endured and why it probably isn't going anywhere despite the fact that many people don't see letter writing as exactly a thing to do anymore, which is a shame. I am a letter writer myself. I like the old snail mail. And to see these stories, it just gives me a bit of a uplifting boost. <laughs> Even though they're, they're by and large kind of on the darker side of things, they're very much also capturing sort of like the, the strength of why people write letters, the hope that they can inspire the amount of damage that they can do. Yes, they sort of have this thing. You are, there's a, a sort of intimacy and also a facelessness that comes with writing letters that all of these do very well to capture. And they're, they come from some, I guess, unusual sources, or at least sources that I feel that people don't always look to for speculative fiction. The the first two places, um, Uncanny Magazine and Flash Fiction Online, fairly big. Orthogonal is brand new. Uh, the last two, Nightmare, despite being a SFWA qualifying market and putting out amazing content, I don't think it's enough credit for the... It's speculative horror. And I think too often people see the horror aspects and just sort of dismiss it out of hand and don't want to look at it. But the spe it's speculative fiction first, and that applies as well to the circlet piece, which is speculative fiction first, erotica as well. Like, they're linked, yes, but it's not like the erotica makes it not science fiction fantasy. So, there you have it. Five stories that do an amazing job with the form of the letter, most of them from 2016. For people who might think about um, getting into snail mail just on a, a 
similar topic. There are a number of geeky ways that you can do that. There is the International Geek Girl Letter Writers, the Eagle, which you can look up. There is the Letter Writers Alliance, which does a lot of weird things with the mail, like you can send fake pigeons. Um, there is the League of Extraordinary Pen Pals, which again, sort of a geeky letter writing group. Some of them you have to pay for, some of them are for free, and uh, just sort of exploring um, letter writing in general, but indeed. Sincerely, Charles Paysewer. We've talked about the impact of representation, its scarcity, the problems with chronically stereotyped representation. Justina also talked about her experience of reading Anne Leckie's Ancillary Justice, both in terms of reader representation and also the importance of challenging reader assumptions. I hadn't read any reviews. I just, I just had heard some buzz. Like it was a really great book, and I was like, "Oh, that's cool." You know, it's like, you know, it's, it's. There hadn't been any like cool space operas in a, in a minute that had come across my radar, and so I picked it up, and I had no idea about the everything was was female pronoun. Mm-hmm. So I was like, <laughs> reading this book, and I'm like, probably a third of the way through, I'm like, man, there's a lot of women in this book, and then I'm like, holy shit. That's not really the case, right? She's just using this, you know, female pronoun in like a weird way. And so I ended up having to go back to the beginning and read again because then I was trying to figure out like who is what gender. And then I was halfway through the book. I'm like, why do I care? Uh-huh. Like it doesn't even like, it, you know, it doesn't matter because she's, she's managed to write a book. Like he managed to write a book that like the main character is empowered enough that it, it I mean, you assume the main characters, I assume the main characters female regardless of the, the gender pronouns. But what she kind of did there is she kind of gave everybody an entryway into that story. Unless you are, you know, truly like a gender fluid person, in which case, you know, she kind of didn't do the, that so great. But like, if you know, if you subscribe to like, if you know, if you're cisgendered and you're just kind of like, you know, this is my pronoun, you know, you could imagine Breck is male just using a female pronoun, or you could imagine that Breck is truly female. And for me, that was like, you know, it shouldn't be. It's 2015, you know, it's the future. But for me, that was groundbreaking because this is the first time I can actually read a story and not worry, you know, that the person, the main character is going to end up somehow falling in love with the wrong person because that happens all the time when you have a female main character mm-hmm. or, you know, doing something stupid so the male character could save her because that happens all the time when you have a female main character. And then this is why I'm excited because like I'm excited to read read something that's truly, you know, gender gender neutral. I'm, I'm excited to read something that's truly gender fluid. I'm excited to read, you know, a fantasy with the trans main character because, you know, when you take people out of their comfort zone, when you give them that thing they're not expecting and you do it well, it opens up whole new ideas. You know, I'm I'm cis, like I don't I don't think about gender as much as I do in terms of, you know, feminism, but so I don't think about gender identity and, I, you know, the more I read about it, the more I think about it. The more I think about it, the more I question, you know, how we interact in the world. And I think the more I think about how we interact in the world, the more I'm open to and receptive to new ideas. Each episode closes with a memory of a significant book. The right book at the right time, an interesting find, or just something that stuck around. Probably my favorite book, we were just talking about Jemison that I read and the book that kind of was like, it doesn't have to always be this way, was um, The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms. I picked that up kind of on accident. Um, somebody had, had given it to me and they're like, you have to read this book. And I was like, okay. Um, and it was somebody who actually didn't like fantasy. So that's always a nice thing when somebody who doesn't like fantasy is like, you like fantasy, you like this book. But it was just amazing. Like, I am a huge, huge fan of like the 
pantheon fantasy where you have the gods, kind of the meddling gods in the story. But to be able to finally read a story where you had people of color, you had brown people feature mm-hmm. prominently and you also had you know she was i mean again back to like the whole being between two worlds you know the main character in that book is also biracial and that was my first book i read i'm like you know you could write a fantasy with people of color it doesn't have to be reductive and people of color don't have to be orcs or some other type of like fantastical creature like you could have just really well done fantasy that doesn't feel alienating and that was kind of like the first book I read. And I was just like this. And it's still on my, it's still on my short list. Whenever somebody's like, oh, I want to start reading fantasy. What should I start with? That's the book I hand them. Yeah. Without fail. It's so good. It's that, so good. That was another one I had to read. I had to read a couple times. The first time through, it was just, for me, it was all about Nahadath and Sia and her relationship with the gods and the right. romance going on there. And I just, I was at that point kind of walking away from fantasy because I'd just been reading the same book over and over again by lots of different oh, yeah. authors and with lots of different titles. And and then I read 100,000 Kingdoms and <laughs> so good. Yeah. I, I think it's just, yeah, it's just, and it, you're like, you're right. It did come in at a time where everything was very much the same. I just saw a quote on Twitter the other day and it was like, maybe you're not tired of fantasy. Maybe you're tired of old white kings camping in the woods or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. and I, that's like, that's really the thing. It's how is something that allows us to dream as big as we want it to, to dream becomes so reductive. Like, how does that happen? Jemison is just like, she's like my literary hero. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at jsuttonmorse. The show is on Twitter at kingcabbagecast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.